0: For the Old Testament reading, we turn to Psalm 1, found on page 448 in your Pew Bible. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Please recite with me the prayer for understanding found in your bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as a fulfillment. To understand these words, for thy name's sake, Amen.
1: Well, the Apostle Paul is very clear in his thesis for us today, in the in the message he wants us to receive. He repeats it, which is always a good sign uh, that we should pay attention. And we are saved by grace through faith on account of the works of Christ, and uh, this is, as I've mentioned already this morning, a wonderful cocktail napkin summary of the gospel now it's not the only thing you need to know to be a christian how we are saved um but we also need to know other things we need to know about the bible we need to know about scripture and its inspiration about the church about the sacraments but the gospel is the heart of the christian message the message of christ crucified for sinners god's grace in christ and so we should uh, take and receive these words as I believe the Apostle intended them for the church as a brilliant gospel summary inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is God's holy word for us today. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me now in our prayer for illumination that we may uh, understand and apply these words to our hearts. Our fathers... We have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you are following along uh, in our worship bulletin, we do have an outline there. And uh, this this text, these ten verses uh, break... um, not not absolutely, but quite clearly into three movements, three key themes. Uh, the first three uh, verses talk about who we were before we came to Christ, dead in our trespasses. And uh, the next three or four verses talk about this fact, as it's repeated twice, that we have been saved by grace through faith. And third and finally, we are created, we could say recreated, in Christ Jesus for good works. And I also put these these flags in that outline that this follows, not accidentally, the outline we use in our catechism to teach the faith to our children and to teach the faith to parents of children about guilt, grace, and gratitude. And so Paul is providing this wonderful gospel summary for us, I think quite intentionally as he's in prison and doesn't know what the future holds in store for him. And he, he worries about his church in Ephesus. Well, let me just start before we get into our outline proper. One of the things I really love about this church is hearing your stories, hearing the diversity of faith that has uh, uh, the backgrounds of, of individuals who have uh, come into uh, this particular church. It's, a, of course, a hallmark of American Christianity. Uh, we are, we're all on a journey, right? We're all uh, traveling. And it's so common to not be set and fixed by the, the, the situation of our birth, the family we were born into, but to move into new faith traditions, maybe to deconstruct, to reconstruct. So these stories are, are fascinating. I have a story. and Not many people ever want to hear my story, but uh, I get, I'm up here, so I get to tell it anyway. But, um, you know, I, I often joke that my proof for the sovereignty of God is that I became a Calvinist in the Religious Studies Department at Stanford University. Like, what are the odds? I had this uh, uh, somewhat theologically progressive uh, professor. Uh, He was an Episcopalian. I was reading Soren Kierkegaard, of all things. And he said, well, if you want to compare Kierkegaard to someone else, maybe you should read Luther and Calvin. So I did. And so God brings us all on an amazing journey. Here I am. I'm the pastor in a Dutch Reformed church. And this, in many ways, could only happen in America, although this is spreading. And why do I go into this sort of background of our religious diversity? Because I think it's very relevant to remember how much we are alike the church in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul is addressing an Ephesian church that is much like ours in the diversity of faith. I mean, look at it this way, right? Uh, he's writing probably 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. Virtually no one over the age of 20 was baptized a Christian at their birth, right? He's talking to a church of converts to Christianity. He's talking to them 7 or 10 years after their founding. And we know in our passage today, we'll see in last week we saw that there are both Jews and Gentiles. Paul speaks of you and we. We know that among these Gentiles there were worshippers of Artemis of Ephesia. We know that there were people who, as Acts chapter 19 tells us, brought their magic books and threw them on the fires. The bonfire of vanities. We don't need that magic anymore. We've met Jesus. Some people ask, well, this is a... Strange letter. Maybe Paul didn't write it because it's not like all the other Paul letters. I'm sure every letter you've ever written is exactly the same, right? Well, Paul's not addressing any conflict in the church. He doesn't talk to anyone by name. But do you know what the Apostle Paul is doing here? This church is only 10 years old. They don't have a New Testament canon, they don't have a New Testament, they don't have creeds or confessions. They've been baptized into the triune name of God. And they have all these crazy background, magical demons, things going on. And he's in prison in Rome, for all he knows, about to die. And he wants to lay a foundation for them. Because the apostles laid a foundation. So he says, you know what? I'm going to put the gospel on a cocktail napkin. (laughs) If you're going to memorize a text, this is a pretty good ten verses of scripture to memorize. And so we are a lot like this Ephesian church. We are a lot like this Ephesian church. and Paul's mission here is to unite them from all their diverse backgrounds, and they'll remain diverse. They will always be diverse. We will always be diverse. And yet, what does this epistle focus on? Our unity in Christ? He wants to unify this church and the source of our unity. It's not our skin color, or our ethnicity, or the kind of songs we sing, or our worship music, or the color of the carpet in the church. Our unity, it's certainly not our our nation, or our nationalism. Our unity is the gospel. It's that we're all sinners, dead. All brought to life in the same way, through Christ. Christ. Unity in Christ. Our sermon title next week, we put it in the bulletin. We give you some suggestions of of what scriptures you can read this week so you get a little bit of background for next week's sermon. Our title next week is The Unified New Creation. Paul says Christ came and he took two men who were at war with each other and he made one new humanity. That's who we are. This is what stirs up and sets the table for that great statement in chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's unity. And our unity comes about by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And since we're a Reformed church, we have to be precise. So the full version is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We like that word, alone. It's important as we'll see why. So let's let's walk through the, the three parts of this summary of the gospel, which you would do yourself a great service to memorize. Guilt, grace, gratitude. The old life and death. How we're made alive, even while we're dead, in Christ's life. And finally, God's divine working of an obedient new life in us. So first, guilt. We are dead in our trespasses. This is the way we uh, formerly walked. As I thought about this point in the outline, I thought, you know, it's so great that like zombie movies have kind, kind of become big again in the last decade or two. We're walking dead. Paul says, you were dead walking. That's like a zombie, right? Formerly walked in accordance with the way of this world, the, the things, the order of this world, the age of this world. That's in verse 2 he says that. And then in verse 10... He says, these good works that God prepared before and that we should walk in them. This whole gospel summary is framed up as so much of the Old Testament wisdom literature is about walking on the path, the straight and narrow, the two ways in which you can live your life. We formerly walked in accordance with the age of this world, but by grace, we start walking in the good works prepared for us by God. And brothers and sisters, as important as this doctrinal foundation is, that the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ are for us, the gospel fundamentally changes us. It transforms us from walking one way to walking another way. It's transformative good news. That's what makes it good news. Because your sins mean death for you. If the gospel brings life, it must stop you from sinning as you used to sin. Or else it's not good news. There are two different ways of living. God transforms us by grace. He recreates us. That's his language here. The important thing, the good news about this good news is that we don't transform ourselves because we can't. And that's really the key to the gospel. A lot of people want to talk about God's love. A lot of people want to talk about God's life. A lot of people want to talk about community. Think of all the churches that have these words in their names, right? But Paul says, no matter how mature you get, you can't forget where you came from. You can't forget God's work of grace in you and what he started with. Because it's going to keep you from going off the path in the future. And it's so simple, right? Death. (laughs) Paul doesn't mince words. He doesn't worry about offending people. The picture you should have here in mind is Lazarus in the tomb. Three days starting to stink. Apart from Christ, we are dead. So if, if you come upon Lazarus, maybe you're Mary or Martha, your brother's dead, he's been dead for three days. What, what kind of advice are you giving your brother as he lays there dead? You know, um, Lazarus, you should really get some more exercise. You know, 10,000 steps a day and you'll be more healthy. Maybe a little bit of yoga for flexibility. He's probably starting to stiffen up. Eat healthier food. Maybe you need to lose some weight. Take some supplements. Of course, you don't give any advice to a dead person. Because they're dead. They don't need instructions for better living. They don't need a roadmap. They're not going anywhere. They're lifeless, powerless. Literally, all they're contributing to the world around them is their decay. Clearly, Paul doesn't mean here that we are physically dead. And this is why he says, Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were the walking dead. We were like zombies. Our spiritual death is a walking death. It's a death that is on a trajectory. It's on a path. It's going somewhere. It's characterized by a sort of behavior, a sort of action, a sort of thought, a sort of desire. And all the language he uses here is to get to the point of comprehensiveness, totality of our death. He says, We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, these are synonyms, synonyms roughly mean the same thing, but a trespass has more the sense of there's a, a code of law and you broke it, a clear infraction. And a sin has more the code of defilement, impurity before a pure and holy God who is blameless. So there's sort of two different kinds of sins. And you notice why does it matter? Why does he say both? Well, he says both in a way of, of rhetorical expression to express every possible kind of sin. <laughs> right? If you said if you're dead in your sins, you're like, well, sometimes I trespass, but at least I don't sin. Like those people over there, right? If you said if you're dead in your trespass, you're like, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not breaking that law. No. Trespass sins. We're dead in every way. We're following the course of the world. The word here is the the eon of this age, the epoch of this age. We're living in a pattern. The course, uh, the word course is used here as a a translation to to think of of just the way the world goes. The the rising and setting of the sun, the circling of the earth around uh, the seasons. We're on a path sort of like we're in a chain game following the deceiver. The wages of sin is death and it's our sins that are killing us. Step by plotting step. I got the picture in the Lord of the Rings book or movie of, of the hobbits Frodo and Sam in Mordor and to, to save themselves, they pretend to be orcs and they put on this horrible heavy armor and they can barely move and they're starving and they're dying of thirst and it's hot. And they're being whipped as they walk and march to their death. It's such an important image because because we've already talked about last week... That this is about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the conquering King. And until we're in His victory parade... Until we're marching on His trajectory... Psalm 68 going up into the heavenly places... As He leads a host of captives in His train... Until we're on that path... We are by definition on the other path. It's binary. And this isn't just about our sins and trespasses. This is about our, our pledge, our marriage, the club we voluntarily join, which is the club of Satan. We are following someone on this path. We are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit Working in the sons of disobedience. It's not the world as God intended it. It's not the world as God designed it. But this age. When Paul talks about this age. He talks about this global cosmos. In Romans 8 for instance. Crying out. Groaning. Under the weight of sin and death. I've been listening to. Uh, I always listen to podcasts. You guys know this. But. I've heard a number of secular commentators talk about the spirit of Moloch in our age. The spirit of Moloch. Moloch's in the Bible, right? Moloch's a pagan god. And why would godless people, atheists, as far as I know, talk about the spirit of Moloch? What are they talking about? The deceiver who rules our age. One of the examples of the spirit of Moloch, I thought this was kind of interesting, was how these, like, Instagram, social media influencers started using uh, a filter to beautify them. It removes all their flaws and makes their skin look perfect, right? And, and, of course, if you're beautiful, you get more followers. And if you get more followers, you know, you prosper. You make more money. You get more ad revenue, right? And so... No matter what you think about a beautifying filter, if one person starts, invents a beautifying filter and then starts using it, all the other people are gradually going to lose their audiences. It's an arms race, right? I'm not saying you're a sinner if you use a beautifying filter. That's not my point. here. <laughs> but my point is, there's a logic, there's a rationale of the machine we've built, of the world we live in. A competitive spirit that can, in some instances, drive everyone into the basement. Because everyone else has to Put the filter on to keep up. And then soon, at the end, no one gets an advantage from using the beautifying filter because everyone's using it. No one looks like they really look. None of the unique, beautiful characteristics of each individual is preserved. And yet they're all now in the same place they were before. It's the spirit of Moloch. And there's so many different ways it drives everything we do. When Luke gets back... You can have him tell, tell you the story about uh, his favorite author, Wendell Berry, and how the interstate system is the spirit of Moloch. Now, it's really easy for us to see sin in others. That's one of the geniuses of this gospel summary here. It's really easy for us to say them, those over there. And that's the key to Paul's guilt section here. He doesn't let anyone escape. Because you notice he starts, you know I love uh, pronouns, I love my pronouns. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You. Well, who's he talking about? He often in chapter 1 says we. Why does he go back to you? And then he says in verse 3, among whom we all, we all, all, Comprehensive. It's emphatic the way he positions it in the text. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he starts by sucking them in, right? Oh, we can all, oh, yeah, I used to be really bad. Look at those people over there. They're sinning. They're eating meat offered to idols. Those people over there aren't worshiping on the Lord's day. Oh, we're so good as Christians, aren't we? What Paul's talking about here is that it's not just our disobedience, not just our acts of sin and our trespasses. He says it's in our very being. He's pointing to the passions of our flesh, the desires of body and mind. It's not a part of us. It's not my bodily desires as though sexual temptation was the one great sin that's a real sin. Sometimes the church goes that direction. Wrong. Wrong. The desires of our body and our minds. A good word for mind here would be rationalizations. I'm sure you can conjure, if I ask you to right now, an image of of one of the most gross, offensive, sinful things that the world is engaged in right now. Maybe promoting globally. Maybe it's a big agenda of the world right now. You could probably picture it in your mind. And you think, ooh, gross, that's sin. I'm not that. I'm better than that. But remember this. That world following that prince of the spirit of this age. They have a rationale. They have a rationalization, don't they? They're seeking something. They're seeking freedom. They're seeking release. They're trying to get rid of their guilt and shame. So we empathize with the world. Not only do we empathize with them in the abstract, but concretely, we know that we have lives full of idolatries. We have hearts and minds rationalizing our sins away. Husbands and wives, you live intimately with another human being who you're called to be one flesh. And you can see your spouse rationalizing things away. and say, like, that's what a horrible sin. I'm glad I'm not a sinner like that. And then every once in a while, your spouse speaks truth into your heart. And you're like, oh, wow, that's me too. And you confess the grace of Christ comes in and does some healthy healing work. So Paul says, the same thing he said in our law text today, Romans 3. Jews, Gentiles, all of us are under sin. And notice the language here. He shifts in verse 3, right? He starts talking about our flesh, our body, our mind, by nature. By our physis. By our physical composition. We are born under sin. That's why it affects all of us. All of humanity is in the same boat. Children. Notice he said sons of disobedience. Now we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind, like everyone else. We're all the same. This is the same argument of the first three chapters of the book of Romans put in three verses. Paul's really refining his argument here. Gospel summary. Calvinists like me call it total depravity. Not because we invented this term, but because it's in the Bible. The key here, brothers and sisters, is that as you grow in your Christian faith, you're never the one conquering sin and death. You're always surviving on the fuel of grace and mercy. The pattern of the Christian life is a daily pattern of guilt, grace, and gratitude. It's a daily pattern of repentance. Martin Luther said in his first of his 95 theses, when Jesus Christ said, repent, he didn't mean go and do penance. He said, live a daily life of repentance. And so we hold in our hearts, not for the sake of of flagellating ourselves about how sinful and gross and corrupt we are, or for quitting in our pursuit of holiness, but we hold in our hearts the truth of where we started. And we confess that sin continues to cling to us. This builds in us humility of Christ and joy at the grace that he has shown to us. And that really brings us by transition uh, to, uh, to the second main point of this gospel outline. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. Now Paul has done something that we can't really see in English. But in these first three verses he's started a sentence, he's started in an idea... But he hasn't started with the subject of the sentence. And in Greek, because it's an inflected language, you can see what grammatical part of speech. He started with the direct object. He started with the thing that is receiving the action. And that's us, dead people. It's a good thing, because dead people can't do anything, right? We don't need to give dead people instructions. But he's been building tension, rhetorical tension, as he talks about who we are, who the objects are. And then... Out of the blue, like a lightning bolt. He says, but God. And there's the subject of the verb. God. But God. I'm sure he won't. Well, maybe he will mind. But uh, Michael Horton is a friend of mine. And he once was writing this book about the gospel. All of his books are about the gospel. And he says, I think I want to title it, but God. I'm like, "Eh, but God's probably not a great title, right? (laughs) But this is where he was going, right? We are dead, but God, God is rich in mercy. God is the subject of the gospel. God is the one who acts. God is the one who saves. Just as Jesus calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus' words are like the gospel landing in the ears of dead men and women. And we get up off the slab of stone and we walk out of the tomb. So God chose us from among sinful humanity before the foundation of the world. God, who Paul says is rich in mercy. There was a ransom on our head, a price to be paid. And he didn't balk. He didn't even ask how much it cost. You know, like those fancy restaurants. They don't have prices on the menu. I'm going to buy that one. I'm going to pay that price. I love them. Why? Why Why is it out of mercy? Because we are rebels. Even to the last we fight His grace. Romans 5 puts it so well. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God, does it again there, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, three times he repeats it in a few verses, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. God doesn't see anything lovely in us when He loves us. He makes us lovely with His love. Nothing in us motivated this work. Nothing triggers God. We deserve death. That would be just. And where does it come from? It comes from God Himself. Because, what's the cause? Because of the great love with which He loved us. His abundance of love. God's own love for sinful humanity while they're sinners motivates his act of saving grace. And to drive this point home, Paul will repeat himself right here. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. So you see, he gave the object of the sentence. And then when he finally gets around to the subject, he gives the object again. But God, being rich in his mercy, even when we were dead, made us alive. This is the gospel in one sentence. God made dead men alive. You can diagram that. Paul is summarizing, boiling down in the most short and pithy fashion. God made dead men alive. what does what does this God do? What is the action that he takes upon them and he, he 's very explicit here he says, and, and Paul invert, invents word actually throughout there are entitled, entire articles that have been written about the fact that Paul coins new terms, and this is you know, if you've ever studied German, you know, they just stick words together to make new words. And, and Paul does the same thing in Greek. So this is legit, right? But he says, he made us alive together with the Messiah. He raised us up with the Messiah. And he seated us with him. Each one of these three verbs is a word where he just puts a prefix on it. He puts the prefix sin together with. So we could translate, he co-made us alive. He co-raised us and he co-seated us with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. Paul has to invent words to talk about how we're saved by Christ. And this is why we say Christ alone. And we insist, as Reformed Protestants, that it's not that Christ saves us, Christ helps us, Christ encourages us, Christ teaches us, he saves us alone, Christ alone, he does it all. Because the only way we're saved is, this is Christ, and this is us, dead, Is by being glommed together with him. Being incorporated into him. And then he literally carries us on his shoulder. Like that lost lamb he finds. And throws over his shoulders. By grace you are saved. What is grace? It's God bringing you back to life. And finally Paul states the purpose. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The immeasurable riches we've, we've seen from chapter one here through chapter two. Paul continues to play on the reality that Ephesus is one of the richest cities in the world. Certainly the richest city in Asia, that it's a uh, temple I drove by the Lincoln Memorial last night. It's all lit up at night. It's beautiful, and I was reminded of the fact that the Temple of Artemis Ephesia was four times the area of our Lincoln Memorial. was a third taller. This massive temple was full in its crypts and catacombs with the wealth of all Asia. And you know what people would bring back? You know where that wealth came from? It was from military victories, and they would come back and they would put it in like the trophy case. I don't know if your high school had a trophy case. You know, or banners in the gym, state champs, 1997, whatever. Why? Why did God love rebels? So that he could build a trophy case. His riches are us. His grace and mercy in us. We are the trophy of God's gospel victory in Christ. We are his prized possession. The proof of his love and mercy and kindness. All these glorious attributes that belong to God. Have now been revealed in us through Christ. We've been captured from the enemy. There's a victory arch of Titus in Rome. If you've seen it. Titus of course defeated the Jews. And despoiled the temple in Jerusalem. And in the victory march you see them. With uh, carrying back to Rome the menorah from the temple the lantern of gold it still stands 2,000 years later but this is an eternal victory that Christ has won at Calvary over sin and death and as we'll see in the later part of this chapter, and there, all these images come together, right? Sometimes these, these treasures were, as in Ephesus, brought back to the temple. You remember when the Philistines took the ark, right? And they go to the temple of Dagon. They're like, ah, oh, we've defeated Yahweh. We've defeated Yahweh. And Dagon was, you know. And it happens three times or whatever. Christ took us, and we are the temple. <laughs> He's building us into the temple. Again, the unity here. You see the unity we have, brothers and sisters? How can you bear a grudge when we've all come to death to life? How can you hate within the body? How can you tear down? How can you gossip? If death is a fitting one word summary of our guilt, this one word made alive together with Christ is a fitting summary of his grace. Which brings us to gratitude, the third movement in God's, Paul's gospel summary here. We are created. In Christ Jesus for good works that we should start walking and this brings us to the third and really crucial element of the Christian gospel so we've been saved we're in this trophy case yeah yeah great well what now what do I do now if I don't have anything to do with my salvation then why why care And you see here Paul's concern that the gospel includes our holiness. We are saints by faith in Christ. That's who he addresses the letter to. Holy people who've been made holy by their faith in Christ. The spirit which God uses to save us makes us holy. That's why we call it the Holy Spirit. That's how we are saved. We are saved by the transformation which is grounded in what Christ has already done. So the gospel must, therefore, include our good works. Now, you can take this in a very bad direction. If I were to stand here and say to all these dead people, here's the good news, go do something about it. That's no good. That's not good news. And that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, rather, that you were brought alive by God's grace, it's a gift, and now I'm going to put you on the right path. And Paul starts talking about this new path by talking about grace again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we need to keep coming back to the grace God showed to sinners. You would think that he couldn't make grace any more clear. You would think that he couldn't emphasize any further that God does everything in our salvation. And yet he does again and again and again. You would be wrong. He reiterates the gospel by grace. You have been saved through faith. And then he puts an exclamation point. in: Not your own doing. Not you. A gift. Not a result of works. No boasting. We are his creation this doesn't originate from you in any way, shape, or form. And this is the great scandal or offense of the cross. You are powerless. You know, in the broad uh, cultural language, of it's, whether it's the 12 steps or recovery, right, addiction sometimes, you hear this language of reaching rock bottom, right? Sometimes you have to reach rock bottom to know your emptiness, to know your need, to recognize your brokenness, And and that idea, that secular idea, is really reflective of this real gospel truth. Guilt is our rock bottom, that we are powerless. And we contribute nothing but our sin. We provide the spiritually dead body, Christ does the rest. Church history is littered, literally from the very first day, with members of the church who want to give the sinner, some say in their own salvation, who want to boast just a little bit. Well, you have to believe of course to be saved but you also have to be circumcised and keep the ceremonial law Galatians you have to believe but you have to eat kosher too, Romans Corinthians you have to believe and keep the Sabbath and the new moons and the feasts Colossians you have to at least of your own free will cooperate with God's saving grace Arminius the remonstrance yeah you have to believe but your faith has to be formed by love the medieval Catholic Church And Paul says to all of these errors, which he knew well about by this time, what do we contribute? Nothing, 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 nothing. And that's just the plain sense of the text. This isn't some Calvinist going crazy on some flight of fancy. That's what the text says. Everything you do towards your salvation, and you do things towards your salvation, is given to you. From the first understanding, the first glint of light, the first belief, the first act of faith. It's Lazarus responding to the gospel command of Christ. Get up. Lazarus doesn't come out and boast about what he did. Did you see me walking out of that too? That was pretty cool. I mean, I was dead, and then I raised myself. Just a little bit. Jesus helped. Grace is a gift. And gifts in their very essence are not earned, they're not deserved, they're not due, they're unmerited. And worse, this is demerited. This is a gift given not to a friend, but an enemy. So when Paul says, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, often in the history of the church people say, oh, well, he's just talking about ceremonial works. What he is saying now is that the Old Testament law of the ceremonies is no longer enforced and you don't have to do those things. No, that's not what he's saying. That's not what the text says. He says, we don't do anything. It's not limited. And that's why he pivots to boasting. There's nothing you can point to. Remember, this is the section of the story about the stuff we do. (laughs) This is the section of the story about our good works. Do you see how our good works have to be grounded in the consciousness of our death and our grace, God's grace to us in Christ? We boast. Yes, we boast, but in Christ, not in ourselves. And this is why the debate over grace and faith in Christ in the Protestant Reformation was finally framed as a debate over grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Because people try to come up with versions of grace that were just a little bit of help and assistance, or versions of faith that depended on us being faithful in the right way, or versions of Christ where he's just our buddy and our co-pilot It's why Alone Matters, the solas of the Reformation, became a rallying cry. Do you know the freedom and the joy of being saved by grace alone? And if you grew up in a church where your hope of salvation depended upon you taking an annual pilgrimage and crawling on your knees and lighting candles, such that there were paths all over the continent of Europe, worn in the soil, worn in the stone, in the fields, paths of pilgrims going to places to light candles to crawl on their knees maybe God will love me today if I try, if I show him that I care. And the Bible says no. He loves you. He loved you in Christ. And he loves you in Christ. Christ alone. And yet, miracle of miracles, it changes us. We stop walking that way and we start walking this way. This whole gospel thing, Paul can frame it. It's the way we used to walk and the way we start walking now. And this beautiful idea that's going to dominate and does dominate his gospel preaching, that we are his workmanship. He's created us. Yeah, yeah, we're all God's workmanship, but this is talking about new creation. Good works are a necessary part of the Christian life, but they're a necessary result of God's work of new creation. The greatest metaphor, the greatest image in the New Testament for our holiness, our good works, is what? Fruit. When the Spirit works in us, it bears fruit. A good tree bears good fruit. And God's gospel makes us good trees. It plants us in Christ. We are branches grafted into the vine. And everything we do is something he has set before us. He's a path to walk on. They confirm our faith. They strengthen our faith. They encourage our faith. We are destined, as Paul will say in the following verses, to become one new man, one new humanity, to treat each other differently, to love one another differently in the church. This is the purpose for which we are saved, that we may be a blameless, spotless bride, washed by the blood of Christ. And it starts now, not later. This transformation isn't perfect, it's not complete, but it is beginning and it is real. But pastor, you don't know my sin. Pastor, you don't know my struggle with sexual deviancy, with pornography. Pastor, you don't know that I'm a bad husband. Or maybe I'm not a husband anymore. You don't know that I'm divorced or I've been divorced six times. Do you hear his voice? My sheep hear my voice. You've been changed. You might complain that change is coming slowly. Maybe you don't see it, but God sees it. He's working in you. If you're worshiping him, if you're hearing his voice, if you're submitting and reading God's word, Paul wants you to see that you're in that trophy case. He says, the ages to come. Paul, when he thinks about human history, thinks about this age and the age to come. And so when Paul says he's going to display his mercy and his kindness to you for ages to come, he's talking about for the rest of this age and then for all eternity too. You can't transform yourself. You are palace. Most of us here know that already. But God can. Guilt, and grace, and gratitude is the recipe for Christian comfort. Let's pray that the Spirit might work it in our hearts today. Merciful God. We know our sin. Sometimes we get sloppy. Sometimes we minimize it. But we know it deep down. We don't know your grace. It's foreign and strange to us. We need to be reminded every week. And thank you again for teaching us this day. And God, would you kindle in our hearts by the power of your spirit, the kind of gratitude that responds to the new life we have, that, that nourishes it, that cherishes it, that blows on the flame, makes it large and strong and warm and bright. That we might be a witness to a watching world of the hope that we have gospel glory through Christ our Lord, risen, seated in the heavenly places, and we're right there beside him. Amen.